I'm Laura Axtell, one of the hosts of PodClast, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode. As you'll hear in a moment, I had the opportunity to have an extended conversation with William Van Cleve, and our discussion around a range of educational topics was really insightful. Mr. Van Cleve is known for specializing in some areas that haven't gotten as much attention, such as syntax and handwriting, and I hope you'll find our talk as fascinating as I did. PodClast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, a foundational reading program based on the science of reading that can be delivered in any setting at any time. The blended learning model with software ensures that students in K-12 receive solid reading instruction at home, at school, or as a hybrid. Visit www.readinghorizons.com to learn more. And now our conversation with William Van Cleve. Thanks for joining me for this conversation, Mr. Van Cleve. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on a number of topics we'll be discussing today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the chat myself. So you've been involved in a number of projects over the last several years. So before we get started, could you share what you are really proud of in terms of kind of creating the resources and training that are aligned with research? It's a great question. I think that I guess my specialties in the field right now are morphology and vocabulary instruction and syntax and the other aspects of writing instruction. And I guess I'm really seeing as my mission, helping teachers see the value in a structured writing approach uh, and also giving them the tools they need to implement such an approach in their classroom. So I'm excited about that. I'm on a grant project in Montana working with three schools uh, two days a month um, over several years. That's been really exciting because it's not a one-shot training. It's an ongoing thing. I've also done a a great deal of work for uh, Patton in Pennsylvania, ongoing, helping them develop writing standards uh, for the state. But finally, and most recently, because of COVID-19, I'm involved in virtual trainings, which I've really never done before. I've done some webinars, uh, but this this training thing, it kind of forced me to develop a a virtual training model that I'm really excited about. And it's small, intimate groups of teachers working and interacting over a series of days in small chunks, so 90-minute or two-hour blocks, to really develop a deep knowledge of content, not in a kind of a webinar mode where I'm speaking and they're listening while they're doing other things, but instead an interactive class where people are trying out content, experimenting with things, working on ideas, asking questions, having discussions as we develop our knowledge and the content. And that's been a really exciting and very, very new for me. It really started in March when uh, the world was grounded because of COVID-19. Wow. So I know you've done extensive training all over the country and internationally. What's been your favorite international training destination? My favorite international training destination was Australia. Uh, I went three years ago and actually, interestingly, I'm supposed to be there right now uh, on my second visit. And of course, I did not go because of our international crisis. Uh, But Australia was great. And I can't wait to go back at some point when the world is a little safer. So as we mentioned, you do a tremendous amount of training for educators. And one of your most requested workshops is on syntax. Could you begin by defining syntax and then discussing the role of syntax versus grammar? Yes, I think that's a great question. And syntax is actually probably my favorite thing to talk about in the field, partly, I think, because there's a great deal of misunderstanding and also because a good number of teachers who I encounter are really kind of scared of syntax, uh, tentative about their knowledge and comfort with teaching it. So syntax, kind of by definition, is the arrangement of words and phrases to create well-formed sentences. In other words, it's word order. 
So it's the, the way we put words together to convey an idea. So syntax across different languages varies. So in English, we have something called a subject, verb, object kind of framework that's typical that you would recognize even if you don't know what those terms mean. But say, for example, in Spanish, they have a structure where there are a lot of understood subjects. And we don't have that in English. We have an occasional understood subject, but it doesn't show up very often. So that's a syntactic difference between these two languages. So the idea behind English syntax is it's a way of constructing uh, sentences, of putting words together that convey an idea to a listener that is not just the way it's done, but because it's the way it's done, it's recognizable to the listener. It's easier to kind of facilitate that information coming into the brain. So I have an example. So tell me about this. So, for example, we would generally say the big blue truck, but we wouldn't say the blue big truck, right? That's true. So that's actually a funny part of syntax. So there's something called, you can actually uh, look this up. It's, it's uh, amusing. It's called the royal order of adjectives. This is a true thing. And because people always are like, that's not real. And, and, but it is. So the royal order of adjectives. And there's a way to put adjectives in an order that kind of synchronizes with what the ear is used to. And there are rules for the royal order of adjectives. They're not typically taught to a native English speaker because he doesn't need them. But an EL student might need them because he would need or she would need a more kind of systematic, structured way of understanding how it is we choose to put adjectives together in a sequence. So syntax connects to meaning and sentence structure, but also just what we're comfortable with and what the way we would generally speak in English. Yeah, so so syntax is both speaking and listening, but it's also both writing and reading. You know, for a number of years, I really focused on the writing aspect, on generating sentences, and that's still extremely important to me. But increasingly over, I don't know, maybe the last decade, I've also been extremely interested in how syntax uh, exists in text that students read and how that can either facilitate understanding or trip up and confuse kids uh, in understanding as well. So it's this, this really interesting relationship between reading and writing and also between listening and speaking. And one of the powerful things about that is that if you teach kids syntax, you get double bang for your buck. So you get both improved writing and also improved reading comprehension. And that's awesome because, you know, anything you can instruct where you get more out of it has got to be beneficial for kids. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Like give an example of how that would connect to reading and writing. So, you know, one of the interesting structures that crops up in middle school, for example, is something called the relative or adjective clause. So if you say something like the man who had a leather satchel over his shoulder uh, stuffed with interesting uh, trinkets from his travels, uh, walked around the corner and met his friends for a coffee, that whole who part, which is called a relative or adjective clause, it adds to syntactic variety. I get to tell a little bit more about the man. But also, if I'm reading that, that sentence, that can actually trip me up. Because what I have to do is I have to hold on to the man when I read it, 
while I'm reading all of the additional who information. And then I've got to anchor it back into the fact that he's walking around the corner. So it really taxes your working memory. And Cheryl Scott, one of the great syntax researchers, she said the further the subject is from the verb or the predicate in that main main sentence or that main clause, the harder the sentence is to understand. So when you separate man from walked by so much language, it's really hard for kids to take it in and kind of retain it. That's one of the reasons why that kind of sentence, the sentence I'm talking about, doesn't appear as often in speech. So because the listener can't take in and and hold on to all of that information in the same way that the reader can, because the reader can look back at the text and what have you. So if you think about a struggling reader, either uh, decoding issues or comprehension issues or both, and you give them a sentence like that, that's really uh, it's it's necessary. It's important for a kid to learn something like that. But it's also really difficult for those kids to do that. And then here's the, the really tricky thing about the one I just gave you, that kind of sentence sentence typically appears in informational text. So when you've got informational text writing, you're also learning about new content. It might be about photosynthesis or it might be about the Revolutionary War. So you're taking in new content, new vocabulary in a syntax that doesn't show up in narrative writing very much. And and you can get overwhelmed very quickly at the sentence level and not really know what's going on in the text. What do you think teachers need to know about teaching syntax that they obviously didn't probably learn in their university classes, but given the example that, how do you teach that? There are two primary kind of dominant themes in my work with teachers in syntax. The first is that function trumps form, that we not ask ourselves what a word is, but instead we ask what the word is doing. So if you take a word like man, at first glance, you would say man is a noun, and you'd be right a lot of the time. But you can also talk about man the lifeboats, You can talk about, man, it's hot out there. Um, You can talk about uh, a manhole cover. So you start to see man in different ways, in different functions. So again, it's not what the word is, it's what the word does. Function trumps form. So that's the first theme. And the second theme is there's an incredible power to the building blocks of sentences. And these building blocks are called clauses. And you can actually introduce them starting in about mainstream third grade. And when you start to combine these clauses, these units of language together, what you end up with is repertoire. So you end up with providing students with options concerning syntax rather than uh, limiting them or putting them in a box. So the way you put these building blocks, these Legos, these clauses together gives, gives you options as a writer. And then as you work on the way those are put together, they also help you unlock sentence level comprehension at the same time. I've heard you talk about syntax as both a micro skill and a macro skill. Could you explain that? So one of the things that I think is really interesting in uh, in teachers' discussions about syntax is there seem to be kind of two polar opposites in thinking. And when when you talk about uh, teaching syntax, or, or some people use the word grammar, which I'm not as comfortable with. But when you talk about teaching syntax or grammar, a lot of the teachers who are against the explicit teaching of syntax, they think syntax instruction is about mechanics, that it's about capital letters and end punctuation and where do we put the commas and those kinds of things, and that it limits student writers because they're so constrained by all of these rules and regulations. And I don't see syntax as mechanics really at all. I mean, there is punctuation that accompanies 
uh, syntax that makes it uh, easy to convey to the reader and for the reader to understand. But but syntax is a door opener, not a door closer. So syntax allows us to explore and expand options as a writer. It empowers student writing. Uh, it empowers student writers rather than limiting them. So there's there there's this kind of false dichotomy between uh, find your voice as a writer and mechanics and nitty gritty as kind of the two opposite, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm in the middle of this. I want kids to find their voices as writers, of course, that's fine, but I want to give them the tools to do that in a structured sequential way. And that's through the power of syntax. So it's not about, did you capitalize this or did you put a period here? It's about, do you have a sense of what a complete sentence is? And do you have different ways to convey the exact same idea so that when you go to compose a longer text, a paragraph or an essay, you've got tools at your disposal to share your ideas in different ways to allow sentences to flow one after the other without sounding repetitive and boring and without being riddled with fragments and run-ons. So would it be fair to say that syntax is a key component of reading comprehension and also as part of effective writing. So yeah, you, uh, again, you get double bang for your buck. So uh, syntax instruction is so powerful for, for reading and writing. And one of the, the most interesting things I do uh, with my work in syntax is when I'm asked to speak to a middle or high school group of teachers that isn't just ELA. So it includes people like science teachers and history teachers and these people who are at least at first reaction, not all that happy to be in the room because they're learning something that they see as an ELA skill. And one of the ways to get those teachers engaged is to show them some of the syntax that they will, that their kids, their students will encounter in textbooks that is likely to throw those students under the bus. So when you when you see that that framework and you say, look at what's happening here, do you recognize this kind of sentence as something that kids would see in your textbook? And you get vigorous nodding. So and these teachers, the science teachers, the history teachers, the econ and the agriculture teachers, you know, the teachers in the content areas, not ELA, a light bulb goes off and they say, oh, wait a minute. You know, my students aren't just grappling with photosynthesis or whatever the content is. They're also grappling with how to get the information out of the text. And part of the, the things that constrain them are vocabulary. But part of that also is the syntax frequently used in informational text. So I love doing that kind of workshop. It's a hard sell, if you will, to non-ELA folks. But when you make it happen, it's so rewarding for the teachers to begin to understand what's going on. So that's the reading comp link and the, the writing link. When you start to build the, the parts of speech in terms of function trumps form, and when you start to build the interrelationship between clauses, you're building the way groups of words interact with each other to convey meaning. And students begin to experiment with syntax using the tools you developed with them to create different constructions. And they'll say things like, oh, wait a minute, this is doing that. Or um, if I add this here, that that is working their writing as they convey an idea, but also it's working their reading copies. They're thinking about the way that one group of words will relate to another group of words to convey meaning. It takes a little while to get it going, but it's such a powerful connection to make with students. We'll be back in just a moment. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. 
Combining professional development with teacher-led instruction and data-driven software allows students to receive targeted reading instruction that leads to improved reading outcomes. Lynette from Oklahoma shared a success story. A student came to our school when he was 13 years old. He should have been in eighth grade, but he had been held back in first grade for poor attendance. This student was from out of state and had been in a terrible situation. He was taken from his home and placed in foster care in our state. He had not been in school much at all and was dealing with abuse and many other issues. We tested him upon his arrival and he didn't know all the sounds to the letters of the alphabet and could not spell or sound out words like bag, cat, dig, etc. He was scoring at the pre-K level. We started him on Reading Horizons Elevate and worked on his sight words as well. He stood up one day about six months after starting the program and read in front of the class. I was so surprised and proud of him. He moved from our district a year and three months after arriving. We tested him before he left and he scored a 3.7 and then was retested when he arrived at his new district and his foster mom reported he tested at 4.6. This is life-changing for this young man. Thank you, Reading Horizons. Thank you for sharing, Lynette. And now we'll continue our conversation with Mr. Van Cleve. I just have to ask how, I mean, you're one of the few people that really focuses on syntax and, uh, you know, has created a lot of resources and training around that. How did you get so connected to this particular component of literacy? That's a really interesting question. So I will tell you this. I was not a particularly good student starting in about third grade until I got to college, at which point I really took off. But I had an amazing middle school grammar teacher. She really taught us uh, sort of the strict guidelines for how syntax works. And while I wasn't connecting much with with, uh, (laughs) traditional school at that point in my life, that sort of made a connection for me. I don't know that I was doing a whole lot of homework. I don't know that I was a particularly exemplary student, but that kind of connected with me. And interestingly, uh, for what it's worth, I'm also a fan of math and algebra, which may seem kind of not related, but it is. Because when I go and I do syntax workshops with teachers, again, with the whole school, with the whole faculty, what I find is the teachers who are not ELA, who are the first to buy in, are the math teachers. And they are usually the ones who are most resistant about being in the room because they say, this is not my department. Why do I have to come to this workshop? But they'll come up to me at break time and time again, and they'll say, this makes total sense to me. And that's because syntax really is about putting together words to convey a complete thought. It's about an equation in a lot of ways. So there's a very kind of logical way that the language works at the sentence level. I wrote a wonderful uh, senior thesis with a college professor who I'm still very much in touch with. And I also worked in the Reading and Writing Center at my college while I was there, helping actually international students to kind of get their, their ideas, which were fine, into you know, academic language for, for their writing for their classes. And then I landed at a school for dyslexics and taught there for 15 years. And I had other, I mean, I'm uh, Orton-Gillingham trained and I uh, work with vocabulary and other things as well. But writing became sort of my uh, superpower in working with students. Uh, and I find it really compelling. One of the really great things about work with writing and students, writing at all levels is there's a visible, obvious sign of growth. When you're working on decoding, 
their skills will go up and that's great, but it's measurable by some sort of grade level score. When you've got writing, you can show them what they were doing and what they're doing now. And they are often stunned at what they were doing before and how much the growth has happened. And I think that's a wonderful thing to share with students and for students to sort of connect with. So that leads right into kind of another topic, which is the whole handwriting debate that's been rekindled in recent years. I know you have definite opinions on handwriting. So in what ways is handwriting important and how much of a focus should it be in the early grades? So most of my handwriting work actually comes from my own mentor, Diana Hanbury King, and she did not conduct formal research studies, but she worked with students on handwriting for almost 70 years. And I kind of trained at her knee and worked with some students with incredibly challenging handwriting. I watched her teach them. I taught them while she watched me. And over time, I learned a lot of sort of the tricks of the trade from that kind of deep, rich experience that she had of working with just about every single kind of writing issue that you can imagine. But Dinah really taught me the tricks of my trade. And when I do workshops, I really uh, am inspired by my work with Diana. So that said, the handwriting debate, I think it's less of a debate now than it even was five years ago. I think we're beginning to shift back to where we should have been to begin with. I think part of the problem with the handwriting debate, we've got two things that were kind of contributing to this. Number one, we obviously are in a tech generation where increasingly technology is you know, a part of our lives um, and is also a part of our ability to communicate. So, you know, 30 years ago, if you could have told us uh, as citizens of the world that we would be able to speak into a portable object, our phones, as we walk around and send that message to somebody as a written message, I don't know that anybody would have believed us. That's obviously a way of communication that almost everyone is using these days. So we have this this reliance on technology. Obviously, uh, you know, we can type and share our ideas that way as well. So because of the influx of technology, into our culture, into our everyday lives, into our schools, teachers and administrators began to underplay the importance of handwriting, thinking, well, we've just got keyboards, we've got speech to text, we don't need to worry about handwriting because we're in a different world. And I get that, but the research doesn't support it. So handwriting, good structured handwriting, facilitates writing production in a way that keyboarding does not. So, and, and Steve Graham has done a bunch of work in this area as well, um, and others. So what we have is uh, research around structured, sequential, daily handwriting work to get kids to automatize their handwriting and when you do that with kids, not only do you move their writing fluency, which is kind of obvious, but you also move their spelling skills and their reading skills. Because when you work on letter formation, you're activating language links in the brain that facilitate that writing piece. So you don't get that or you don't get it as much when you're touching a key with your finger. So it's not the same connection. And I'm totally pro-technology as well. Ginger Berninger says we should all be hybrid writers in the 21st century. I think that's a great term. We should all run around as Priuses, if you will. You know, these hybrid writers. 
because we've got to be facile with uh, both, with, with both handwriting and also keyboarding, because the handwriting piece is going to facilitate our learning of the uh, written word, you know, of spelling, of, of reading, of writing fluency, et cetera, in a way that keyboarding doesn't. Keyboarding is also going to allow us, though, to write faster, to communicate with, with others, et cetera. So, so there have been several studies uh, over the past decade where they took college classes and the professor lectured for an hour and half the students had pencil and paper and half the students had a computer and they took notes. And what they found in these studies was that the notes of the kids who had the computers were more accurate and thorough. So if I missed class, I would want their notes. But then they assessed the the student's understanding of the content three hours later and three days later. And what they found was the students who did the handwriting rather than the keyboarding, they had a much better sense of the content. They understood more. And what they think is happening is the, the keyboarding kids, they are recording like a secretary or a stenographer and the handwriters, they are comprehending. So they're combining, they're making connections. They're uh, not writing anything that they already know. So they are comprehending as they write in a way that the the keyboard or the word processor is not. And that's a powerful statement because these are recent studies. So these kids were born into technology as opposed to somebody like me. You know, we didn't really have computer labs until I was in eighth grade, but that's not the case with these kids. So, uh, so, you know, they're really thinking about the link between writing, not just, you know, putting words on a page, because that could be word processing too, but writing and the link between that and comprehension and understanding as well. When you were talking about letter formation and things like that, are you kind of saying then that automatized ability to write reduces the cognitive load when it's automatized the same way that decoding, good decoding skills increase fluency? I think cognitive overload is a really interesting thing to think about when we're talking about handwriting. There's a great quote from Flower and Hayes. Uh, They say, writing is the act of dealing with an excessive number of simultaneous demands or constraints. Viewed this way, a writer in the act is a thinker on full-time cognitive overload. And I think that's such a compelling way to think about our language. So if I'm a student and I'm trying to write something down, And I've got this idea and I'm so excited about it and I want to share it and I can't remember how to form one of the letters or more than one of the letters or I can't remember how to spell one of the words. What happens is I stop, I focus on that. I figure out my attempt, whether it's right or wrong. And in the process, I'll often lose my train of thought. So I won't be able to pick up the sentence. And that's tragic. So, you you know, you end up with a kid with a really interesting idea and he comes to a word that his classmates might already know how to spell or that wouldn't have tripped up his classmates. And he stops and he kind of hacks it out and sounds it out and puts down his best attempt. Even if it's wrong, it still cost him. Same thing with handwriting. Uh, You know, let's say I'm writing the word hot uh, in cursive and I don't remember how to connect the O to the T or something. I'm thinking about it. Or let's say I've suddenly got to write a capital letter that I don't write very often. I've got to stop and think about that one. That's going to take away from my ability to express. So part of the power of handwriting instruction is to automatize process 
to get it out of the way, to get it out of your working memory so that you don't have to sweat it. It's not about being a calligraphy expert or having you know really pretty handwriting or anything like that. It's about an efficient way of communicating. So word processing has that power if you learn actually how to keyboard. But unfortunately, that piece doesn't work. The language links in younger kids. So yeah, the handwriting piece has such a power. Same thing with spelling. You know, we've got pretty good spelling checkers now. One of the reasons you teach kids to spell is so it's automatic, so they're not taking away from their ability to express ideas when they're trying to figure out how to spell words. So what's your opinion about cursive writing? Is that a good use of instructional time? There's no study of mainstream students that says that cursive is better than manuscript or manuscript is better than cursive. There's a decent amount of work that's been done on students who struggle. Um, And my mentor, Diana Hanbury King, spent a good part of her career passionately advocating for dyslexic students, for example, to write in cursive rather than manuscript for a number of reasons. But I would say this, let me debunk one myth. There's a myth that a manuscript is kind of the basic form of writing and cursive is the advanced fancy writing. And that really is a myth. And I think it's a myth uh, predicated on the notion that the written language when you read from a book is is manuscript so that, you know, writing a manuscript would sync up. And I get the kind of logic, but there's no research behind that. And if you look at schools for students with dyslexia around the country, a number of them actually introduce cursive uh, in first grade with no problem at all. And they the kids end up with a legible, efficient uh, cursive. So, you know, schools are going to make their own choices about things. And I would actually tell students that cursive is the fancier thing. It makes them motivated to do it. It's the older kid thing and what have you. But there's really no research. So the, the you know, a lot of times in schools across the country, the second grade teacher is tasked with polishing up the manuscript and then maybe shifting over to cursive after the winter break. And I constantly run into second grade teachers who say he hasn't mastered the manuscript, so he's not ready to go on to cursive. And I would debunk that myth because oftentimes students who learn cursive write more legibly and comfortably than they have during their years of trying to work with manuscript. Some of the advantages of cursive over manuscript involve it is faster if you automatize it because you don't have to pick up your pencil and put it back down again and again. Also, the continuous flow of cursive, this kinesthetic tactile piece, uh, the movement involved with touch, um, this kinesthetic tactile piece is stronger in cursive, and that helps us with our spelling. So if you just skywrite in print a word like the, and then you skywrite that same word, Uh, the in cursive, and you feel what your arm is doing when you write it in cursive, you'll feel the kinesthetic motor flow. And there's some of that in manuscript as well, but there's more in cursive. So literally your body is learning the spelling of the word, which is a really powerful connection. Also, many of our listeners have been in a place where they have difficulty seeing where a student's word ends and the next one picks up, that the spacing is off. And with cursive, obviously, the letters within a word touch. So uh, that is eradicated as well. So there's, there's a lot of power to this cursive piece. And people, I run to people all the time and say, well, my students can't read cursive. You can't read it until you've learned to write it. So I think that there's a real power to that. And I have seen again and again in my career students who have been plagued by poor print, 
malformed letters, badly sized, capitals in the middles of words, et cetera, et cetera, who, once they take to cursive, have a better, more fluid form of writing than they've ever had in their lives. And these are sometimes third graders, fifth graders, et cetera. It's not just, you know, the, the little kids. So when would you recommend that that gets introduced right away when they're learning to do letter formation or? That's a tricky question. And I think that in the mainstream world, it is highly unlikely that we're going to be introducing cursive in first grade. I can tell you that occupational therapists, uh, Catholic nuns, the entire continent of Europe, the Montessori folks, as well as the Orton-Gillingham folks, they are all pro-cursive from early on and have been for a very, very long time. I think probably in school systems, they're going to start with print, and I understand the motivation, but I would also have a period where you shift over uh, and you work with cursive, and the catch is this. Too often in schools, students work on manuscripts for two or three years, and then they work on cursive for three months, say at the end of second grade, and then the teachers are surprised or they want to know why the kids revert back to manuscript. And the problem with that is if you go into fourth grade and you are asked by a teacher to take down notes, probably for the first time, I think that's where some of that begins to happen. The only goal you've got is to get the notes down so that you're not the last person writing. And your manuscript, while it may not be as fluid, while it may not be as as well-formed and attractive, if you've given it two years to automatize and you've given the cursive only two or three months, the manuscript's going to be much faster. So you're going to have to work on any stroke you introduce for at least two years. So if you do two to three years for manuscript, you're also going to commit to two years of the cursive instruction to get that to a place where students could actually use it as a tool. And the problem with not automatizing handwriting is that we know handwriting impacts writing automaticity, handwriting impacts uh, ability to spell, it impacts, you know, reading skills. So it has all of these powerful, uh, you know, purposes. So when you don't do handwriting instruction explicitly, directly, what happens is it affects their ability to do tasks that are on the standards, things like composing an essay or what have you. So there's a long-term effect. So handwriting isn't directly mentioned, but the cause and effect relationship between handwriting and some of the writing tasks that are asked is is punitive, if you will. Um, It costs them. So we've been talking about, you know, syntax and writing and all these things that often teachers find very difficult to teach or struggle to teach. So what's missing in teacher preparation? What can we do to allow teachers to be, first of all, more comfortable and have a better understanding of these topics, but then how to teach it? Research indicates that teachers know less about structured writing than they did 10 years ago, like new teachers coming out of uh, training courses, et cetera, and that we are uh, building a generation of teachers that don't have that background and that depth. And they know it. They're excited to take trainings. They're, you know, they're excited to fill in that gap. And I think part of that stems from the fact that the research on teaching prescriptive grammar in isolation is very bad. It, it basically says that it does not help students at all. And I, I agree with that research. Syntax work that is focused on coding, labeling, and marking rather than understanding, generating, expanding, and creating does not build a better writing. It just doesn't. So this is what happened, though. The, the research that indicates that grammar taught in isolation is bad for kids is used 
to eliminate all sentence level structured writing instruction. And that that's a misuse of that research. You know, syntax instruction can be quite powerful and quite meaningful when it's contextualized, uh, when it's taught in a structured sequential way that involves application. There's a power to that. So I think teachers need a deep knowledge of the writing process of what goes into writing, of what goes into students who struggle with writing, and how to do a step-by-step process that would help students build writing. And this is at syntax, which is the topic of our talk, but it's also things like building a good essay, et cetera. So there's this idea that when you teach structure, you limit or you put students in a box. And that's not the case, you know, particularly struggling writers, but writers uh, across the board. A structure facilitates writing development. It facilitates showing students their options. And there's a power to that when it's instructed, right? So, you know, teachers, they need a deep understanding of the writing process. Time and time again, I meet teachers who are into having students express themselves and they're very uh, focused on, you know, developing student voice and those kinds of things. And that's fine. But they also, many of those same teachers grapple with how to teach students to improve their writing. So I, I run into teachers who say, well, I know how to write that better, but I don't know how to guide the student to improve it himself. And that piece is what's missing in teacher education. So when I do my syntax intensives and when I do my my composition and essay intensives, uh, the reason that I've limited those to 25 people is I want the teachers to practice the questioning, the discussion that's embedded in the work with structured writing that builds better writers. And that's powerful and it takes time and it takes depth. None of this is a quick fix. Um, And I think that's one of the things that teachers are grappling with with writing. I think in many ways, writing is harder to teach than reading because of this one feature. When you teach reading, you have a text in front of you that is agreed upon and accepted as here's what we're looking for. When you teach writing, you have no idea what's going to come out of the student's mouth or the student's pen or the student's keyboard or computer. So when the student generates text, you don't know what's coming out. There's no control of the content. And that's both really interesting to see what the student's going to come up with, and also really terrifying because you may or may not know how to take the student to the next level. You may not have the skills to help the student address his own needs to move or to grow as a writer. Well, and it's way more time consuming to to guide that process, to coach in writing, right? Absolutely. So, so I think it's a very time consuming process. It does take, there's no quick thing about this. You know, some other skills uh, can be developed a little bit more quickly, but the writing process, there's a lot that goes into it. And there's a lot to building students writing, taking them from their level, wherever they are right now and moving them forward. That takes time. Absolutely. Which is why you've developed so many great resources and why your trainings always sell out. So could you please explain what resources you have and your website so that people who are really interested in digging into this more can access those? Sure. I wrote a book on syntax called Writing Matters. Uh, I love the book. It's great. It's about the approach to teaching writing, uh, syntax level writing. Because of the intensives I'm, I'm doing right now, I am also writing a new book called Syntax Routines. So writing matters is about the approach of teaching writing. Syntax routines is really going to be about that approach, but embedded into classroom instruction. So really thinking about classroom teachers, 
from probably third through 12th grade and how they can best embed syntax level work into their classes. My intensives are awesome. And I'm really, really enjoying uh, taking 25 teachers on these journeys into syntax, into I'm doing morphology vocabulary, I'm doing a handwriting workshop, a general vocabulary. Um, and that information uh, is available at wvced.com, my website. It'll give people a little bit more access to what's going on. But I'm excited about this work. I'm excited about being somebody who can share and help change uh, teachers' learning curves and help them be better teachers of the writing process. So last question, do you see any of what you're doing getting connected to higher ed? Do you think that this is going, I mean, obviously it's a need. So do you see any interest from higher ed about wanting this information to be able to prepare teachers to go into the classroom to do what you're talking about? I think change at the higher ed level takes time. I think we have to be patient, but we also have to push. One of the the best things that's happened to me in the last year was I was presenting in, coincidentally, in my college town in Worcester, Ohio. Uh, The cool thing is they had invited my college's education students to attend the workshop and the professor probably made it mandatory. I don't know. But anyway, a bunch of students came from my alma mater and their education uh, majors or minors or what have you, and they're going off to teach. And we did morphology. We did vocabulary instruction. And I felt like I was helping address exactly what you're talking about. And I also had a blast because they were students from my college. But I think higher ed, the the shift there is you have to have teachers at the higher ed level, not only who are willing, but who know the content. And we all know one unifying thing about ourselves. We teach what we know. So if you don't know the content deeply and richly, even if you're willing, that's going to be a tricky thing. So we're going to have to train professors to convey the content that's meaningful for instruction. Wow. Mr. Van Cleve, it has been really a pleasure to talk with you about some topics that are really gaining importance in our work with children and adults. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I had a wonderful time. Thanks again to Mr. Van Cleve and to all of you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time for an episode with the other host of PodClass, Stacey Hurst.